Okay. Show me. Sometimes that is better. Welcome to the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast. Be sure you never, ever scream. A podcast where we will explore the dark corners of our world, the weird, the creepy, and the strange. There are no accidents, no coincidences. I am your host, Eric Carrier. The Boogeyman is real. And they must be coming night. My co-host is Jessica Carrier. Thank you for joining us for a journey into the unknown. Be one of us. Let's get started with today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the show. This is the Prairie Land Paranormal Podcast and I am your host, Eric. I am here as always with my wife and my co-host, Jessica. Jess, it is another frigid day in mm-hmm. Illinois. Yes. It is icy and snowy and just horrible outside. Perfect day for podcasting. Mm-hmm. What do we got in store for our listeners today? Today, we're going to be discussing President Dwight D. Eisenhower and the Griotta Treaty. Did President Eisenhower meet with alien races in 1954 and sign a treaty that exchanged alien technology for human abduction and experimentation? Well, stick around and find out. This topic has been on my radar for quite a while, so I'm excited that we're finally getting around to it. But before we can do that, we have to take a minute and do some self-promotion. Don't worry, we'll keep it short and simple so you don't have to hit that skip button. Basically, it boils down to this. Thanks for listening. Please share the show. Check out our website if you're interested in merch or leaving a tip. Leave a review and subscribe to our social media channels. We have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and love to hang out and meet you guys there. We also have a new TikTok channel you can check out. Yeah, the TikTok channel is actually doing quite well. If you're interested in some short videos on some of our favorite topics and stories from our episodes, check it out. Yeah, I love how you've added pictures to what we talk about. So if you've ever wanted to see some of this stuff, just check out the TikTok. Yeah, our username there is Prairie Parapod, which is the same throughout all of our social media channels. Jess, is there anything else? Nope. All right, let's get started with today's show. All right, so the question that we are setting out to answer today is, did President Dwight D. Eisenhower have a secret meeting with gray aliens in February of 1954, in the which he signed a treaty called the Grayata Treaty, which exchanged human abduction and experimentation for alien technology. Jess, are you familiar with this? You know, actually, I have heard this. And at first you think, how is this even possible? Why would a president of the United States even consider something like this? And it seems so far-fetched. But when you actually look into it, it's kind of interesting. It is very interesting. Hopefully some of the things that we share with you today will open your minds up to how interesting this actually is. So obviously this falls on the conspiracy spectrum, and according to conspiracy theorists, this absolutely occurred. And President Eisenhower did sign what is called the Grayata Treaty. I'm going to have trouble with this the entire episode, Jess. I want to say Granada. (laughs) You're just going to have to slap me if I do that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Don't worry. I can do that. So here's the story in short. All right. So supposedly... In February the 20 through the 21st of 1954, President Dwight D. Eisenhower disappeared. He was on vacation in Palm Springs, California, and he just went missing. Now, that really doesn't happen. Presidents don't just disappear. Think about what would happen if President Biden just disappeared. How would people react to that? I mean, presidents can't even go to the bathroom by themselves. So for the president to go missing for several hours, it caused some panic. And you actually can look in history and find out that he did go missing. Now, the question is, why did he go missing? According to conspiracy theorists, during this time, President Eisenhower was taken to Edwards Air Force Base for a secret meeting. Now, he showed up actually for church services the next morning, just kind of out of the blue, like he was gone and then showed up for these services. And the official story was that he'd had a dental emergency where he had to have an emergency dental procedure. They even paraded around a local dentist to confirm this. 
it just seems a little strange that they couldn't say at the time, oh, the president is having some dental work done. It was that he went missing, and then they provided the dentist afterwards. Which is part of the problem that fuels this conspiracy. It's missing time that seems to be covered up with a cover story. And you know that that is just going to fuel the conspiracy theorists. So what was he doing during this missing night? Well, according to conspiracy theorists, he was at Edwards Air Force Base, which was formerly Murak Airfield, taking place in a first contact meeting between his officials and extraterrestrials. So at first, it probably seems like a huge jump to go from a dental visit to an alien first contact meeting. But the truth is, it's backed up to some degree with circumstantial and testimonial evidence. So let's take a look at some of this evidence and see if we can figure out what actually happened here. Most of this information that we're going to talk to you about comes from an article entitled Eisenhower's 1954 Meeting with Extraterrestrials. The 50th Anniversary of First Contact by Michael E. Sala. This article was written in 2004, and Michael seems to know a little bit about what he's talking about. He actually has a PhD in government from the University of Queensland, Australia, and a master's in philosophy from the University of Melbourne, Australia. With these degrees, he specializes in something he calls exopolitics. It's basically a political study of key actors, institutions, and processes associated with extraterrestrial life. Basically, how extraterrestrial life affects us and our government. He actually founded the Exopolitics Institute in 2005 and the Exopolitics Journal in 2006. If you are ever interested, he is the founder of the website www.exopolitics.org. So he took on a 50-year study of the evidence surrounding these events, and he created this 50-year anniversary article. So let's start by looking at some of the circumstantial evidence. So first of all, the vacation. So it's not unusual for presidents to go on vacation. We see that even today with golfing trips and other short trips that the president takes. But typically those things are scheduled. This vacation, however, was announced very suddenly and came less than a week after the president had taken another vacation to Georgia in which he had gone quail hunting. Now, I don't think it's unusual for the president to go on a sudden vacation. But according to UFO researcher William Moore, it was unusual and it was being used as a cover story to get the president to Palm Springs for this first contact event. Now, it was during this vacation that the president went missing. And let's look at that a little bit. We already talked about how unusual it was that he just went missing. He had actually been missing so long that the press started to speculate what might have happened to him. Had he taken ill or even had he died? No one was really sure what happened. So after the president being gone for a full night, they have this hasty press conference the next morning where his press secretary announces that Eisenhower is fine and he lost a cat to a tooth while he was eating fried chicken and he had to be rushed to a local dentist who treated the president. They even paraded the dentist around and everyone seemed to buy this explanation. However, there are those who believe that there was no dental emergency or dental visit, but actually... Eisenhower's whereabouts had to do with something completely different, meeting aliens. Moore is on board with this and insinuates that if Eisenhower was missing for an entire evening, he could have easily been taken to Palm Springs to nearby Morocco Airfield, currently known as Edwards Air Force Base, to meet with aliens. Moore also believes that the unscheduled nature of the president's vacation, the missing president, and the dental cover story all provide circumstantial evidence that the Palm Springs vacation was a cover story for him to attend an event that could not be disclosed to the general public, a.k.a. a meeting with extraterrestrials. Now, while that evidence is extremely circumstantial, there is also testimonial evidence that this is actually what occurred. So let's look at some of that testimonial evidence as well. Now, some of this evidence is firsthand. There is at least one person who claims to have been at the event and provides evidence of that. 
And then some of this evidence is secondhand. People who have had access to classified documents or people who are related to people who have claimed to be involved in this first contact event. So as far as first-hand evidence, that primarily comes from Gerald Light. Jessica, tell us a little bit about Gerald Light. Light was a well-known metaphysical community leader in Southern California. He wrote a letter to Mead Lane, who was the director of Borderland Sciences Research Associates, and he claimed that he was part of a delegation of community leaders that were called upon to meet the ETs at Edwards Air Force Base for the purpose of testing public reaction to the presence of ETs. Here is what the letter says. My dear friends, I have just returned from Morocco. The report is true, devastatingly true. I made the journey in company with Franklin Allen of the Hearst Papers and Edwin Norse of Brookings Institute and Bishop McIntyre of Los Angeles. When we were allowed to enter the restricted section, after about six hours in which we were checked on every possible item, event, incident, and aspect of our personal and public lives, I had the distinct feeling that the world had come to an end with fantastic realism, for I had never seen so many human beings in a state of complete collapse and confusion, as they realized that their own world had indeed ended with such finality as to beggar description. The reality of the other plane aeroforms is now and forever removed from the realm of speculation and made a rather painful part of the consciousness of every responsible scientific and political group. During my two days visit, I saw five separate and distinct types of aircraft being studied and handled by our Air Force officials, with the assistance and permission of the Ethereans. I have no words to express my reactions. It has finally happened. It is now a matter of history. President Eisenhower, as you may already know, was spirited over to Muroc one night during his visit to Palm Springs recently, and it is my conviction that he will ignore the terrific conflict between the various authorities and go directly to the people via radio and television, if the impasse continues much longer. From what I could gather, an official statement to the country is being prepared for delivery about the middle of May. And as we know from history, no such formal announcement to the public was ever made. From my point of view, what Light describes actually seems rather terrifying. Even the people who were brought in to talk about this were having a hard time not panicking. He described a lot of confusion and the emotional impact on the people that heard it was tremendous. And on top of that, people had different opinions of what they were supposed to do. Do they tell the public or do they keep it private? So there are a lot of different possible and probable outcomes of this event. So you can imagine if your community leaders, if your government, if your scientists are all freaking out about this, how would the public react to this? And I think it's reasonable to assume that Ultimately, why they decided to keep this secret is because that would have been amplified through the public like a thousandfold. I've also been thinking about this, that this was 1954. In 1954, people were maybe a little bit more closed-minded than we are today. Today, we have been introduced to so many different influences that we are a little bit, I'd say, desensitized in our time and potentially maybe able to handle it better than they did. Well, keep in mind also that this is the era of the Cold War. This is also the era in which people were building bomb shelters in their backyard. They were worried about nuclear war. And add to that a first contact event, a UFO disclosure, and an alien disclosure. And I think you've got extreme panic on your hands, like War of the Worlds type panic, where people are off jumping into their bunkers and committing suicide, I think that they probably made the right decision at this particular time to keep it secret. I agree with that decision. I think that the people weren't quite ready at the time to even have to think about the possibility of extraterrestrials. I think that you're also right, though, that we are at a different place and in a different time, and that we as a society could handle this better. I think to some degree, we actually kind of expect it at some point. Yeah, today we're constantly being bombarded with reports on the news of 
unidentified flying objects. It seems like things are gearing up for some kind of alien revelation at this time. Yeah, I think that we live in a time and a place in which we expect at some point full disclosure on the alien UFO topic. But when has the government ever fully disclosed anything? Exactly. If we get something, it's not going to be the full disclosure. So let's take a minute and talk about some of the people that Light mentioned in his letter. The first person was Dr. Edwin Norse. Dr. Norse was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to the president and was President Truman's chief economic advisor. If Dr. Norse was present during this event, it would be in order to provide expert advice and opinion on possible economic effects and or impacts of first contact with extraterrestrials. He seems like a reasonable person to have in a first contact delegation. Yes, definitely someone you would want on your team. The other person was Dr. Bishop McIntyre. Just tell us who that was. Cardinal James Francis McIntyre was the bishop and the head of the Catholic Church in Los Angeles at the time. He was appointed the first cardinal of the Western United States by Pope Pius XII in 1952. He was a well-known Catholic advisor, and if he was present, it would be for religious purposes, religious opinion on how this would affect the people in general, and to offer representation for the Vatican. It seems like they're getting their bases covered. Definitely. These guys do make sense as possible delegates for a first contact event. The other person mentioned in Light's letter was Franklin Winthrop Allen. And Allen was a former reporter with the Hearst Newspaper Group, which was the largest newspaper group of the time. Allen would have been about 80 years old at the time of this meeting. And he was the author of a book that instructed reporters on how to deal with congressional committee meetings and hearings. If he was present, it would have been to give instructions on how to deal with the press and also instructing the press on how to deal with the confidentiality of some of this information. So these four individuals really represented the backbone of conservative America uh, with emphasis on religion, spirituality, economics, and the press. And I think when analyzed, they seem like perfectly plausible and reasonable choices for the government to convene as a committee or a delegation to assess public response to first contact. I think it would have been really great if we had some of these other people that were supposedly on the committee, if we were able to hear their reports or hear letters from them. But we don't. We only have the letter from Gerald Light. True. If any of these other individuals had spoken up and had come forward with this information, then it would absolutely give more precedence to this story. And unfortunately, we don't have any of that, and we're only left with the evidence that is before us. So that covers first-person testimonials. Let's look at some of the other sources of testimonies that have come forward over time. These are primarily testimonies of persons who have come in contact with documents or are relatives of people who have claimed to have been involved. These people would be quote-unquote whistleblowers. So one of the first whistleblowers that we need to talk about is William Cooper. William Cooper served on the Naval Intelligence Briefing Team for the commander of the Pacific Fleet between 1970 and 1973. Cooper had access to classified documents that he had to review in order to fulfill his briefing duties. He describes the background and the nature of the first contact with extraterrestrials as follows. In 1953, astronomers discovered large objects in space, which were moving towards the Earth. It was first believed that they were asteroids. Later evidence proved that the objects could only be spaceships. Project Sigma intercepted alien radio communications. When the objects reached the Earth, they took up a very high orbit around the equator. There were several huge ships, and their actual intent was unknown. Project Sigma and the new project Plato, through radio communications using the computer binary language, was able to arrange a landing that resulted in face-to-face -face contact with alien beings from another planet. 
Project Plato was tasked with establishing diplomatic relations with this race of space aliens. In the meantime, a race of human-looking aliens contacted the U.S. government. This alien group warned us against the aliens that were orbiting the equator and offered to help us with our spiritual development. They demanded that we dismantle and destroy our nuclear weapons as a major condition. They refused to exchange technology, citing that we were spiritually unable to handle the technology which we then possessed. They believed that we would use any new technology to destroy each other. This race stated that we were on a path of self-destruction and we must stop killing each other, stop polluting the earth, stop raping the earth's natural resources, and learn to live in harmony. These terms were met with extreme suspicion, especially the major condition of nuclear disarmament. It was believed that meeting that condition would leave us helpless in the face of an obvious alien threat. We also had nothing in history to help us with the decision. Nuclear disarmament was not considered to be within the best interest of the United States. The overtures were rejected. So I find one thing very interesting about that particular account. Just do you remember when we talked about Admiral Richard E. Byrd going into the hollow earth? Yes. And meeting with a Nordic or Germanic appearing race of beings that live there? Yes, they said the same exact thing. They said to stop with the nuclear war and to take care of the earth, didn't they? They did. And as part of that encounter, they said that they had come forward on other occasions and had been rejected. Do you remember that too? Yeah, I remember that now. I can forgotten that. So that's interesting, I think. Yeah. I wonder if this is the same race that they were talking about. It could be. His experience was in 1947, and all of this is taking place in 1954, so roughly eight years after Admiral Byrd's reported journey into the center of the Earth. Whether that has anything to do with this or not, I don't know, but it's very interesting that they at least wanted the same thing. They wanted us to disarm our nuclear weapons and work towards building a better humanity. I can see, however, how the United States wouldn't really consider this option. I mean, we're in the middle of the Cold War, and we're talking to an alien race, and who knows if uh, they're planning our extinction, so we kind of felt like we needed those weapons. Well, it seems that the United States government felt the same way, which is why they initially rejected the idea of disarmament. So the next person that we need to kind of discuss is Charles L. Suggs, Jr., Charles was the son of a former Navy commander who claimed his father had been present at the first contact event on February 20th through the 21st in 1954. According to Suggs, who was a retired Marine sergeant, his father, Charles L. Suggs Sr., a commander in the United States Navy, attended the meeting at Edwards Air Force Base with Eisenhower. And this is his report. Charles's father, Navy Commander Charles Suggs, accompanied President Ike along with others, on February 20th. They met and spoke with two white-haired Nordics that had pale blue eyes and colorless lips. The spokesman stood a number of feet away from Ike and would not let him approach any closer. A second Nordic stood on the extended ramp of a biconvex saucer that stood on tripod landing gear on the landing strip. According to Charlie, there were B-58 hustlers on the field even though the first one did not fly officially until 1956. These visitors said they came from another solar system. They posed detailed questions about our nuclear testing. William Lear Jr. is also another potential whistleblower. Lear was the son of the famous creator of the Lear Jet, and his half-brother, John Lear, was a contract pilot for the CIA and developed a close relationship with the CIA director at the time, William Colby. According to Lear, we were indeed warned from the other race prior to an agreement being eventually being signed, and he claimed they visited Murak or Edwards, and the following occurred. Quote, In 1954, President Eisenhower met with a representative of another alien species at Murak Test Center, which is now called Edwards Air Force Base. This alien suggested that they could help us get rid of the greys, but Eisenhower turned down their offer because they offered no technology. End quote. Another account that needs to be mentioned is that of Robert Dean. Robert Dean was a master sergeant who spent more than 27 years in the military. 
He served at the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe Division and had access to top secret documents when he was working in the Intelligence Division for the Supreme Commander. Here's what he had to say. Quote, The group at the time, there were just four that they knew of for certain, and the Greys were one of those groups. There was a group that looked exactly like we do. There was a human group that looked so much like us that it really drove the admirals and the generals crazy because they determined that these people, and they had seen them repeatedly, they had had contact with them, there had been abductions, there had been contacts to other groups, there was a very large group, I say large, they were six to eight, maybe sometimes nine feet tall, and they were humanoid, but they were very pale, very white didn't have any hair on their bodies at all. And then there was another group that had a sort of reptilian quality to them. We had encountered them. Military people and police officers all over the world have run into these guys. They had vertical pupils in their eyes, and their skin seemed to have a quality very much like what you would find on the stomach of a lizard. So those were the four they knew of in 1964. End quote. So while there are some discrepancies in the testimonies as to which Air Force Base first contact occurred, it is interesting that in general, the testimonies tell the same story. That one, there were multiple meetings. Two, there were multiple ET groups. Three, the first meeting did not result in an agreement. Four, the ETs, particularly the Nordics, declined technology exchange due to concern of its use in weapons development. And five, there was an intense disagreement among national security officers on how to proceed and whether or not to tell the public about this. The other thing I'll say about these particular whistleblowers, none of them are minor. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that they have all had distinguished careers within the military. Uh, They were very close relationships to people who would have had very close contact with these types of people in the military. You know, Cooper, for example, was involved in naval intelligence. And Suggs was the son of a Navy commander. And Dean had a distinguished 27-year military career. So none of these are just simple ufologists or people off the street that are saying that they have access to this information. These are actually people that you would expect to have access to this information. So it's not people who are reading redacted copies of information, but it's actual people that would possibly be able to see this information. That you would expect to see this type of information, yes. So eventually, according to this testimonial evidence, an agreement was made. It doesn't say specifically how many times they had to meet with these different groups to come to an agreement, but we know based on the evidence that it was at least more than once. And this initial agreement became known as the Greata Treaty and resulted in a basic agreement between the United States government and the gray alien race. Now, it seems that this was initially initiated with the grays because they were willing to enter into a mutually beneficial agreement. And it was mutually beneficial because the grays were apparently coming from a planet that was dying and they needed some place to relocate. I think the name of the planet they're from is really cool. It was a planet that was supposedly around the constellation of, of Orion, and it was known as Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse. <laughs> now, according to Cooper, the subsequent ET meetings likely took place at Holloman Air Force Base, which is in New Mexico, and the initial agreement was as follows. Quote, The Griotta Treaty stated that the aliens would not interfere in our affairs and we would not interfere with theirs. We would keep their presence on Earth a secret. They would furnish us with advanced technology and would help us in our technological development. They would not make any Griotta Treaty with any other Earth nation. They could abduct humans on a limited and periodic basis for the purpose of medical examination and monitoring of our development. 
with the stipulation that the humans would not be harmed, would be returned to their point of abduction, would have no memory of the event, and that the alien nation would furnish Majesty Twelve with a list of all human contacts and abductees on a regularly scheduled basis, end quote. All right, so let's take just a moment here and discuss Majesty 12 for just a minute. Majesty 12, or Majestic 12, or MJ 12, probably deserves its own full episode. But in short, MJ 12 is a purported secret or shadow organization that appears frequently in UFO conspiracy theories. This organization is claimed to be the code name of an alleged secret committee of 12 original scientists, military leaders, and government officials formed in 1947 by an executive order by U.S. President Harry S. Truman. The purpose was to facilitate recovery and investigation of alien spacecraft. Of course, as a secret or a shadow organization, the American government denies such an organization exists. Jess, are you surprised that the American government denies that this organization exists? Not really. And that's because the American government denies that all secret or shadow organizations exist. But according to ufologists and conspiracy theorists, this organization does exist, and it's one of many shadow entities that are purported to help keep the Griotta Treaty and the extraterrestrial presence secret. All right, folks, now is probably a good time to go ahead and stop for our break. Stick around, and we'll be back to discuss how the Griotta Treaty wasn't exactly mutually beneficial or even enforceable. Hey guys, this is Todd, Sean, and Nate, and we are from the Middle Aged and Creeped Out podcast. We drop full episodes every Wednesday night or Thursday morning, and our Middle Aged mini episodes drop on Saturday afternoons at 3 o'clock. And if you enjoy discussions about the paranormal, weird, unexplained, and just plain creepy, then check out our show. You can find us however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't hesitate to give us a five star rating and review. Telling a friend, family member, or even a coworker about us helps the show. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching Middle Aged and Creeped Out. And our TikTok is at Mako Podcast. And that's with two A's. Well, Nate, what do you think? That's the end of our promo, and that's a wrap. Well, there you go. So until next time, creepies, Nate is your sound engineer. We are your hosts, Todd and Sean. And they are Middle Aged and Creeped Out. All right, folks, we are back from the break. Let's continue on with our discussion on the Griotta Treaty. There are a significant number of whistleblowers that state that the Griotta Treaty was signed by the U.S. government out of compulsion instead of true partnership and agreement with the extraterrestrial races. You know, that makes sense, and I really hope it's true, because I really hope that our government leaders were compulsed in some weird way to agree to let some alien race come in and abduct people from their own homes. I really hope that they didn't knowingly agree to this, but they were compulsed in some way. Maybe I'm a bit more cynical, but I wholeheartedly believe that the U.S. government would trade lives for technology. I hope you're wrong. But it seems, at least according to some whistleblowers, that it was a necessity because, quite frankly, their technology was so advanced that we couldn't stop them from doing it anyway. So it was more beneficial to enter into some sort of agreement that could hopefully be enforced and or monitored. To some whistleblowers, they simply state that we negotiated a surrender. That does kind of make sense too. Because honestly, if you have another alien race with superior technology, there's nothing you can really do to stop what they're going to do. 
And it makes sense that maybe they said, okay, you can do this as long as people don't remember. Well, that is pretty much exactly what Don Phillips said. Phillips was a former Air Force serviceman and employed on several secret aviation projects. He testified that he saw documents that described the meeting between President Eisenhower and the ETs this way. Quote, We have records from 1954 that were meetings between our own leaders of this country and ETs here in California. And as I understand it, from written documentation, we were asked if we would allow them to be here and do research. I have read that our reply was, well, how can we stop you? You are so advanced. And I will say by this camera and this sound that it was President Eisenhower that had this meeting. End quote. Colonel Philip Corso basically states that we surrendered, and that was basically our only choice. Corso is a highly decorated officer that served in Eisenhower's National Security Council. In his personal memoirs, he wrote this, quote, We had negotiated a kind of surrender with them, as long as we couldn't fight them. They dictated the terms because they knew what we most feared was disclosure. So basically, Corso's claim of a negotiated surrender suggests that the agreement wasn't completely to the liking of those involved and primarily one-sided. No one was even sure that the aliens could be trusted to keep an agreement. And how would you enforce it if they didn't? We obviously couldn't enforce it, so it seems reasonable that we would wait and gain advantage through technology. And the fact that we couldn't enforce it was proven in 1955, when it was obvious the aliens had already broken the treaty by not submitting complete lists of human contacts and abductees to Majesty 12. On top of that, it was kind of clear that not everyone was being returned. Lear also states that the Greys quickly broke the treaty. Here's a quote from him. Quote, a deal was struck that in exchange for advanced technology from the aliens, we would allow them to abduct a small number of persons, and we would periodically be given a list of those persons abducted. We got something less than the technology we bargained for and found the abductions exceeded by a million-fold what we had naively agreed to. End quote. So, Eric, in general, breaking a treaty leads to... A war, right? Typically. So how do you have a war with aliens? It seems like an interplanetary war was a definite possibility. Well, it certainly seems like interplanetary war was a possibility. And Douglas MacArthur, the famous general, is even quoted saying this in October 1955. And many people believe that this quote has to do with the possibility of war between planets. Quote, you now face a new world, a world of change. We speak in strange terms of harnessing the cosmic energy, of ultimate conflict between a united human race and the sinister forces of some other planetary galaxy. The nations of the world will have to unite, for the next war will be an interplanetary war. The nations of the Earth must someday make a common front against attack by people from other planets. End quote. Well, when I listen to that quote, I certainly also believe that General MacArthur likely had some inside information and at least had an idea of what we could potentially be facing. So the question remains, you know, was MacArthur alluding to the Granada Treaty and that the Greys were not living up to the treaty? That's a good question. It is a good question, and I can't say for certain what the answer is, but I can say this. Please keep in mind that the Nordic race did tell us not to enter into any agreements with the Greys. Yes, not to trust them. <laughs> they warned us, don't trust them. But the allure of alien technology seemed to be stronger than the common sense of not entering into this type of an agreement. And the fear of what could possibly happen probably influenced this too. Yes, the fear that they're going to do what they're going to do anyway and we're not going to get anything out of it, and we're not going to have any ability to fight them off or stop them from doing it. It is kind of interesting that reports of abductions start to change in this time of history. In the 50s, 
aliens were kind of considered our space brothers, and there weren't any encounters or abductions that were sinister. But it all starts to change in the 1960s, with reports becoming more sinister, more dark, and with aliens taking on a more evil role and appearance. Yes, this especially changed after the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill in 1961. We covered this in episode 23. From this point forward, alien abductions become more traumatic and more violating. Yes, one ufologist states it like this. Quote, Another apparent pattern that has occurred in ufology is the dominance of the Space Brothers in the 1950s, who were kind, interacted with people who became known as contactees, and took people for rides in their spacecrafts. This pattern changed dramatically with the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill in the early 1960s. The Space Brother human types of the 1950s seemed to fade away, and they were replaced in the UFO literature with another type of alien. In the early 60s, the first abduction of the Hills began a new pattern where the aliens were gray, evil aliens who would abduct people against their will and perform medical procedures on them. There were, as far as this author is aware, no confirmed cases of classic abductions in the 1950s. Unlike the good space brothers of the 1950s, these gray aliens were described by all who were unfortunate enough to have met them as being distant and without emotions, end quote. So this creates a question in my mind. And the question is this. Do the greys take on a more evil role because they are actually truly evil or because after breaking the Griotta Treaty, the government couldn't trust them and therefore started to portray them as evil and sinister through manipulation? Another option is that early alien encounters weren't with the greys, but were with another type of alien. And once the treaty was signed and the greys became involved, then things became more sinister. Well, there are ufologists that do believe that the greys actually have positive motivations in regard to their presence here on Earth, but have been inhibited and targeted by rogue elements within the U.S. military. And one of those ufologists is Dr. Michael Wolf. Now, Dr. Wolf is a prominent figure in ufology, and he is a, an American scientist who claimed to be a member of the quote-unquote above-top-secret satellite government for over 25 years. He claims to have worked primarily on joint ET and human scientific projects in laboratories at Area 51, S-4, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Indian Springs, and Dulce. He claims to be a former member of MJ-12 and head of the AlphaCom team, which is a team that specializes in gathering information on different extraterrestrial races. Dr. Wolf's credentials include a medical doctorate in neurology, a PhD in theoretical physics, a bachelor of science in biogenetics, and a juris doctorate in international law. It also includes a doctor of science degree in computer sciences. Sounds like he might know a little bit about what he's talking about. Yes, if any of these degrees could actually be authenticated, but they can't be, which keeps him a bit of a mystery. But he has an explanation for that, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Wolf came to the attention of the UFO community in 1996 when he published his book, Catchers of Heaven, in the which he chronicles his experiences working for the satellite government. While some of Wolf's claims sound like pure science fiction, if genuine, he is probably the highest ranking member of the satellite government to ever come forward with information involving UFO cover-up and the reality of ET life. Wolf is a big proponent in Greys being helpful, Greys being here for non-sinister purposes. Similarly, Robert Dean believes that ETs visiting Earth are friendly. Officially, however, policies adopted in 1954 appear to be unchanged. A passage from an alleged official document states, Quote, any encounter with entities known to be of extraterrestrial origin 
is to be considered to be a matter of national security and therefore classified top secret. Under no circumstances is the general public or the public press to learn of the existence of these entities. The official government policy is that such creatures do not exist and that no agency of the federal government is now engaged in any study of ETs or their artifacts. Any deviation from this stated policy is absolutely forbidden, end quote. So here's an interesting fact. If there is no ETs, then why are there defined penalties for disclosing such classified information? In December of 1953, the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued Army-Navy-Air Force Publication 146 that made the unauthorized release of information concerning UFOs a crime under the Espionage Act. Punishable by what, Jess? Up to 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Now, in today's terms, $10,000 isn't that much, but think about how much that is in 1953. And 10 years in prison? Just for talking about this kind of stuff? Yeah, it's definitely interesting that, hey, if extraterrestrials don't exist, then you don't need penalties for disclosing such information, right? Exactly. Well, according to Robert Dean, this penalty alone, especially back in the early 50s and 60s, was enough to prevent most former military servicemen from coming forward with information. Now, while prison and a fine is a possibility, the most common strategy for dealing with people who have disclosed UFO information is to simply create them into a foolish entity. Which basically means discrediting them in the face of society. This may include intimidation, silencing, eliminating, or discrediting someone. This policy may also involve strategies such as removing public records of employment or military service, education, degrees, forcing retractions, deliberately distorting statements, and discrediting individuals. Two examples of this are Bob Lazar and Dr. Wolf. So that's where we come to Dr. Wolf's educational information, right? Right. It's not a matter of public record because there is no public record. For example, Bob Lazar. He claimed to be a physicist that worked at S4, working to reverse engineer extraterrestrial craft. He purports that all of his university and public records have mysteriously gone missing. Dr. Wolf also has no physical credentials. He says that this is standard practice for these organizations to erase almost all records, such as the universities attended, degrees gained, and involvement with dark projects. He says this maintains plausible deniability in case of sensitive, unauthorized disclosures and actively discredits whistleblowing. So, Jess, this seems like a pretty good strategy, really. I mean, if you could erase all public records of somebody, that's a pretty effective way to discredit somebody. Yeah, and if you discredit them, anything they say won't be taken seriously. Although within the UFO community, Bob Lazar and Dr. Wolf are taken very seriously, and it does not seem to affect their credibility among UFO enthusiasts. But UFO enthusiasts aren't always taken seriously. That is true. They've done a good job of making them seem like kooks too, right? Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be a surprise that the modus operandi for the military intelligence agencies is to create disinformation, controversy, uncertainty, and confusion in the minds of the public to maintain the secrecy of any extraterrestrial presence. Therefore, testimonies from former officials, employees, and witnesses need to be considered on their merits. And I will say that upon researching this, I find that a lot of the people who have come forward with testimonies regarding the Griotta Treaty do seem to have merit. They do. They seem like highly intelligent people who all maintain positions where they could have been exposed to this information. Now, while it seems that the modus operandi is to intimidate, there are a few individuals within the UFO community who have mysteriously died under odd circumstances. One of those persons is William Cooper. Some people believe that he suffered the most intense and longest military intelligence efforts to discredit and or intimidate any whistleblower. 
that is, up until his death in 2001, at the hands of sheriff deputies. Another is Phil Schneider, who died under mysterious circumstances in 1996 after revealing information involving aliens and deep underground military bases, or DUMS. We discussed Phil in detail in our Deep Underground Military Base episodes. If you're interested in learning more about him, you can check that out. So, like us, you may be asking yourself, will disclosure on ET presence ever come? Well, if you ask me personally, I'm going to say probably not. It's easy to see why it was all kept secret at first. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was uncertainty over public perception, uh, religious perception, true benefits, ET motivations, ET willingness to abide, public reaction to government-sanctioned abductions, and consequences if the treaty was breached. Given all of that uncertainty, I think it was reasonable and necessary to initially keep it secret. The problem is, is that when it comes to the government, once something is secret, there's no benefit to disclosing it. It only opens up scrutiny and probes into ethics, activities, costs, and motivations. And who wants that? Definitely not the government. They don't want that. And for that reason alone, I don't think that the government will ever come out with full disclosure. There may be small, partial disclosures over time, but I don't see full disclosure as a viable option. Yes, I agree and disagree. I agree that there will never be full disclosure, but I do believe that the world seems to be coming to a point where a lot of things will be revealed and it will be a, a huge chunk of things. They may not disclose the Griotta Treaty, but yet they may disclose the presence of aliens. I mean, how can you stop that? If the aliens want to make themselves known, they'll make themselves known. Well, I do agree with that. I think that ultimately the only thing that's going to result in full disclosure is a full alien life disclosure. And what I mean by that is that alien beings are literally going to have to land on this planet and reveal themselves to the entire world. Once that happens, the government will have no ability to hide any of this information. And it doesn't seem that the aliens are ready to do that because it would be really easy for them to make themselves known. All right, folks, that is going to bring us to the end of this episode. Is the Granada Treaty real? Did Eisenhower meet with ETs in 1954? Well, maybe. Evidence from whistleblowers and witnesses suggests that something happened, but are these testimonies enough to come to a conclusive decision? If it did happen, has humanity benefited from the ET presence? After 68 years, should the American people be pushing for or anticipate full disclosure? Can we handle the truth? Do you want to know the truth? Until then, expect disinformation, controversy, uncertainty, and confusion to be the norm. And for these and so many more questions about the Griotta Treaty and the ET agenda, to remain veiled in a cloak of mystery. Alright folks, that is going to do it for us. We will see you next time. All right, folks, that is the end of this episode. We want to thank you for joining us and let you know that we appreciate you listening. If you have enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you would like to share an experience, be on the show, or submit a story, you can do that through our email at prairielandparanormalpodcast at gmail.com or through our website at www.prairielandparanormalpodcast.com. So, until next time, remember, don't be normal if you can be paranormal.